Hey there, what's up everyone? I am Joe Sebelia and this is the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show episode number 74. Now on this episode, my guest is Dave Alvin. Dave is the lead singer for the band White Trash, which you may remember from their uh, probably about 1990 they came out and they had the hit Apple Pie. They also had another hit off their debut album called The Crawl. Dave and I discuss what it was like for a funk rock band in New York at the time and the antics that uh, they had to do to uh, help pull people into the shows, as well as their debut album, what led to the band split, and then also uh, the reunion of uh, White Trash. White Trash is currently creating new music. That's fantastic news. So all this and more on this episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. And hey, if you like this show, please make sure to go follow us on social media at RR Coffee Show and uh, follow us and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. I appreciate you listening. Be a good person. Thank you. Hello? Dave, you there? Yes. You hear me? Yeah, I got you. What's up, buddy? Not much. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Hey, uh, I got to ask you, the first thing I want to ask you real quick is uh, about your White Trash logo on your website. You, yes. You're a New York Mets fan, I take it. Yes. <laughs> for better or for worse, yes. I saw that. I was like, wait a minute there. So you must, yes. you must be a well, huge fan. You know, we're from Queens. <laughs> right. I grew up at Shea Stadium before the new stadium. So the Mets are, you know, we're all Mets fans on the team. And that's, you know, certainly <laughs> not the greatest time to be a Mets <laughs> fan, but, you know, it, it rarely is. And you take your lumps and you just, <laughs> you can't switch teams. We're not front runners. <laughs> that's right. You know, I've been a, uh, I'm a Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan and I've been a fan since the orange and white uniforms. So yeah, I love those uniforms. Yeah. We, we've had some of, uh, some issues, but, uh, we're doing all right right now. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how you, how you been? Good, you know, I'm still alive, and I guess in this day and age, that's a good thing. Right. Have you been uh, pretty healthy through this whole thing? Yes, I, I have been lucky with that. Um, you know, had some friends and people that I know that weren't as lucky, but, you know, yeah, thank God. Uh, how about you? You've been, you did all right through this? You know, I, I got it, actually. I had it back in uh, February. Oh, and it, put, I hope it wasn't too bad for it, you. Well, it put me down. I was about, I missed about a month of work. Yeah, that's yeah, not good. It got me, but you know, luckily I recovered and uh, got my shot, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were, you were saying you were born in Queens. You, you grew up there, but were you born there? Oh yeah, yeah. We were all. The core of the well, yeah. Everybody in the band was from Queens. Within, you know. A block of each other not even like different neighborhoods like um i lived on one side of the street and ethan and aaron lived on the other side of the street and the original drummer andy buzz lang lived right around the corner from me so you know we'd literally just walk across the street yeah and yeah so when you were growing up i mean what got you into music were, was your family into music or how'd that happen um not so much. I mean, my great uncle on, by, that I'm related to on a marriage, 
my, my uncle married um, the daughter of Doc Pomus. And I don't know if you know who Doc Pomus is, but he wrote Viva Las Vegas and uh, Why Must I Be a Teenager in Love and like a okay. hundred really famous songs, you know, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, right. So I didn't grow up with him, but um, he was somebody that was actually helped me out along the way with advice. Mm -hmm. But but getting into music it was, you know, it was to get laid. <laughs> <That's>, right. <laughs> you know, for me, my neighborhood, everyone in my neighborhood was a musician, everybody, because at that time, and, and they were good musicians, like guys, you know, who listened to can play that stuff. And, um, you know, Ethan was that way, too. He was older than us. And, you know, he was uh, originally a drummer. And then he became, you know, one of the best guitar players in the world soon after. But, um, you know, initially, you know, the heavy metal rock scene of the 80s, I mean, you know, for a 16, 7-year-old kid that was like going from high school straight into a porno movie. Right, for, uh, <laughs> right. So it was, it was all about the, you know, in those days for me, you know, uh, looking up to guys like, you know, Motley Crue, that whole, you know, live fast, die young right. kind of thing. So I was really all about living that. And, and, and the guys in my band luckily were <laughs> really good musicians. So somehow we balanced all that out. Right. So did you start off singing or did you play an instrument? Well, I've always played guitar. Back then I was like a very, you know, I could I just power chords and whammy bar, you know? <laughs> uh -huh, right. But I, you know, I wrote a lot of riffs that wound up being uh, white trash songs and, and, and uh, kind of played guitar more as a songwriter than, you know, a soloist or anything. And um, so I started with the guitar and the first band I was with the guy around the corner, Andy. And I, and one day he just, I, I don't know if I was like singing along to you know a, a mixtape or something and he was like you know what you could probably sing and since, <laughs> since it was <laughs> hard to find a singer i was like yeah you think so and so i just started doing it you know at that point and uh and then you find out of course that you know the singers get all the girls right stuff and then you're like wait a minute like why the hell was i trying to learn an instrument <laughs> <laughs> so did it come naturally to you i mean or did you have to really work on it you know i really I, you know over the years, I did work on it, but I, I think, you know, <clears throat> my voice was in a range where I could sing high, which in, in those days was a, a big thing, whether it was, yeah. you know, doing Motley Crue or Iron Maiden covers, you know, the, uh, Judas Priest, whatever, you know, you had to get high in those days. And I was able to do that early on, you know, you know, with falsetto and stuff, but, um, you know, starting there, um, and then just, you know, singing now for, wow, I mean, you know. <laughs> for a long time. 40 years or something like that. It's like, uh, you know, you learn how to sing or you lose your voice at some point, you know. Right. So with the influences, like you were just saying, the Motley Crue's and, you know, Judas Priest and all that, where did the funk part of White Trash come from? So, it, it came, it was a couple of, so, you know, I always listen to like, blues stuff and i always really liked albert king and um he always had horns and um 
and and one of our favorite movies growing up was the blues brothers you know yes and 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 back in those days you know there was a much more obvious well i don't know if it was more but you know all the guys that you were into you know I, i'm a big Jimi hendrix fan and um you know all the guys that influenced guys like Jimi hendrix you know elmore james you know albert king you know um there were a lot of like very easy connections to make with blues and mm -hmm. then blues kind of becomes r&b and and soul and funk and um you know so the blues brothers sort of had that whole balance plus they had the humor that we were trying to have in our band right. so like the blues brothers was probably <laughs> like our biggest influence as far as getting like you know r&b and um and the horns involved that's awesome yeah so now you guys didn't start out like that though did you no we were like at first so me ethan and aaron the like the first gig me ethan and aaron played was at aaron's bar mitzvah literally oh, <laughs> and we have that on video so you it was do. like aaron was 13 i was like 15 and ethan was probably like 17 something like that and we were playing uh living after midnight and uh <laughs> breaking the law nice and you know you know we used to do covers and uh play like the high school battle of the bands and um but you know we always like put on a a, a good show and we were you know we were into van halen and motley crew and then you know and aerosmith and later guns and roses when that came out that was a big deal you know sure so we were like pretty much a straight up rock band and but everybody had um other stuff that they listened to that we would bring in you know so like for me again it was like like blues and and prince and parliament that kind of stuff i listened to outside of all the heavy metal stuff and you know like ethan listened to you know progressive rock you know uh like elp and stuff like that and you know aaron and uh <clears throat> mike you know at a little bit more down the road got into like the chili peppers and stuff and that's you know why the rhythm section has you know a similar sound to that mm -hmm. so so we tried to bring in a lot of influences you know the things ranging from frank zappa you know to venom <laughs> you know what i mean we we were like just booming music because in those days i i don't think music was so rigidly categorized where you, where like you just like metal or you know like we listened to everything and, and we uh, tried to steal from everybody. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, and you had, back then you had, uh, you know, you listened to the radio, you would hear Def Leppard, you would hear, you know, Jay Giles Band, right, Hall and exactly. Oates, all on the same station. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So we were kind of a product of that time is that, like, it's, it's all music. Like, the heavy metal part, like I said, was just, like, being in ancient Rome or being a Viking or something, you know what I mean? Just yeah treating and pillaging and you know the 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 party lifestyle of 80s metal was you know was everything but yeah. musically we were into a lot of other stuff you know i see i see so when did you guys form with the core group so there were different versions of me ethan and aaron playing together um so the first band was called blade blade <laughs> and yeah and we you know we were a cover band and um and then we became wired <laughs> and then uh again we were doing pretty much just covers and stuff but in that band we started 
attempting to write songs. And, you know, in between, they would go off and do something else. I would go off and do something else. So finally, when we got back together again, um, you know, the, then we became White Trash. And when, and was, when was this? So White Trash probably started in, like, 1987 or something like that. Okay. Um, and that was with the original drummer, Andy. And then... Um, when he when he left the band, we got Mike, who uh, we went to high school with, uh-huh. and and the horn players went to the high school. So we we've always been like local, <laughs> you know, recruiting people we know locally. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's about when it started. So it sounds like I mean, as a local band, that seems like it's a pretty big production. Yeah. Well, so we used to always try to do different stuff at shows because we were like you know uh, a big live band so uh, you know originally i used to like smash tvs on stage and stuff and then <laughs> and, and we used to give money to the crowd and buy and buy white castle hamburgers and hand them out and like rip up stuffed animals like you know we were always trying to do something yeah you know out of the oil we we took it in the musical direction and for a while we had backup singers we had three girls called the love dogs in the band uh-huh and that was that was kind of cool but like it, it, you know honestly i think those girls drank more than they sang <laughs> on stage but uh you know again looking at the blues brothers thing and stuff you know we were talking about like initially we were just talking about like hey maybe we could put horns on a song or two, you know, mm. like how like bands like Aerosmith would do that, you know. Right. And then Aaron was in band class with the guys who wound up being on our horn section. And um, once we brought them in and we played a couple of times, it it was kind of evident that we were onto something with that. That that we really could incorporate them. And since you know we were all friends and local, it was doable, you know. Yeah, and sure. so we just kept putting more horns in the songs and 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 we were kind of already headed in a direction where we were incorporating more like funk type stuff into it mm-hmm. and and so it all kind of just came together and we just realized that like okay this is we're like we're onto something with this you know mm-hmm. and then how quick did you guys get noticed well we had a, a good following even prior to the horns um you know, in those days, there were so many clubs in New York, but also in Queens. So in Queens, like, uh, you know, we played places like Lemoore East and um, Gun Club and stuff. And, and 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 we were like the best draw for any like Queens band, like basically. So like any nice. any Queens venue that wanted us, like we just had tons of friends that came to so- see us and everything. And then, you know, we were putting on a good show and and, and doing a, a professional thing, which, you know, not everybody was came across as very professional in those days. Right. And um, so, you know, we had value as an act. And, you know, some of the like the people who owned, you know, the gun club, you know, like Tommy Gunn uh, was the booker at the cat club in the city. And, you know, Nikki Camp, who also was from gun club and recently blackthorn 51 uh, he did the limelight so you know we started getting into all those bigger venues 
and again we would bring a ton of people to any show you know and and our people drank you know (laughs) so it was like if you brought us in it was just economics like you know (laughs) we're gonna make money you know and so in the city at that time it was very like glam you know um and like well i I say poserish not as like a a nasty comment because i was a poser for a long time too (laughs) but we came in and we were like, you know, it was sort of like bad news bears, <laughs> like <Yeah>. versus, <laughs> you know, faster pussycat in the right, venue. You right. know what I mean? And we just bring a street attitude, and and you know, we didn't take shit from anybody, and you know, and and we just hoard ourselves out, and we quite often outdrew those other bands, you know. Right. So that's kind of you know how we we got into that scene. So who, how did you get the attention though of, of who signed you? Um, well, Electra signed us to a record deal. Right. We actually did it backwards. We got a publishing deal before we got the record deal. So first we were signed uh, by EMI to a publishing deal that was contingent on them getting us a record deal. Okay. So they, and, and then you got your record deal with Electra. Well, it, in a roundabout way, they did. So what happened was we we um, they paid for us to do demos, and then they paid for us to do a video, and the video turned out to be the apple pie video. So we made that video before we ever had a record deal. So it was the same video. Yeah. Oh, okay. And if you if you watch the video, you'll notice it's a different version of the song than the album, because it's our demo. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. And so we already had made apple pie and the video and everything before we got signed. And, you know, everybody really likes that video and that song. So it was kind of easy to market the band to record labels because it was like basically like, well, here's a hit. Like, we're ready to go, you know. So we had a bunch of people interested. um, And um, Q Prime became our management company. And, you know, Q Prime still manages Metallica, you know, at that time they were doing Def Leppard and Queensryche and uh, like everybody. Some like, band, you know, they're yeah. like one of the most successful management teams in the history, probably, you know. Mm-hmm. And they got interested in what we were doing. And that opened like a lot of doors. And they had Metallica on Electra already signed there. So they kind of wanted us to go there because they they knew the people mm-hmm. they have a pull there and you know they and so they they brought us to electra like we had um we had like columbia interested and um who else like mechanic records and and hollywood records which became like sbk records so we had a, a few people already interested in us but then they got uh electra interested in us and we wound up going with Electra because of uh, our manager's relationship with them. Do you think that was a good choice, looking back on it? Yeah, I do. Okay. Electra was always very good to us. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the issues we've had really haven't been because of anybody else. Right, know? right. In, in my opinion, you know, it's, uh, you know, we got a lot of great opportunities and, um you know, we had a record deal that was a very good record deal. You know, uh, at the time it was like, you know, <laughs> like 
a really good record deal. I mean, yeah. And um, they supported the product and you know gave us everything we needed to succeed. So I I do think Electra was a really good record company to be signed to. It just they're, they're gone now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you know, your guys sound with the the funk rock combination. I, I'm trying to think back of the bands that were around in like 1990, and yeah. and I can't think of too many that had that sound and you know your chili peppers were there um maybe bang tango to a certain extent you know they had some funk in there but yeah extreme a little bit but there really wasn't a lot of bands that had that style i mean was there a plan for you guys as far as marketing you what, what like how was that going to work with the bands that were out well i think it did i mean you bring that up and interestingly that's the most difficult part of the band even today mm-hmm. is because it's an unusual mix of things but i know you know for us back then it, we wanted um to be different we didn't you know we started off like just trying to be aerosmith or motley crew or whatever but we you know wanted to be something unique you know and um so we found that you know by bringing funk in and again it's not easy for everybody to you got to have really good players to play that stuff right yeah definitely so i was fortunate enough you know to be playing with people that could handle that you know so it wasn't like gimmicky funk you know what i mean like sometimes people throw in a funk riff and it's either good or bad but the point is it's kind of hokey in a certain way so like we tried <laughs> even though we were a bunch of white guys <laughs> from queens we tried to 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 be legit you know we yeah. we tried i don't know that we were always 100 percent successful but <laughs> we were going you know we were listening to the right stuff we were you know had the right players the right gear and it just somehow to us it made sense combining that because in a way like again even in a much different way if you look at like somebody like prince he combined rock and funk. Sure. He had a more dis- distinct Minneapolis thing going on, but, but you know, the, you know, rock, like rock music and funk do go together. It's just, <laughs> yeah, not all the time. But we saw it, and once we started hitting, you know, and connecting on it a little bit, you know, it was obvious that, that you know there, there was something there. Yeah, yeah, working on, you know. So then you record your album, and then who did you guys go out with on that album? Well, we really toured by ourselves most of the time. Um, you know, in the early days, like when we played c- clubs before we got some, we we played with like Bang Tango, like you mentioned before, and mm-hmm. Mike Monroe and and stuff like that. But when we went on the road, we we just were like headlining clubs, you know. Okay. Okay. And um, to be honest, our management. <laughs> was worried about putting us on with bigger acts Why? because because we were like troublemakers <laughs> <laughs> so like we opened up for um Dweezil Zappa at the Cat Club in like uh I don't know like 1990 let's say and at that time Dweezil Zappa was like trying to be Eddie Van Halen right and and um I mean, he's a very talented guitar player, obviously, but um, we we uh, were supposed to open for him at the Cat Club, which is a place we played all the time, which is like a legendary New York place. And it, it, we sort of felt like that was our turf. And uh, and Dweezil Zappa came in <laughs> and and he was like, came across 
and I don't think he's the same kind of person now, but at the time he came across as like some spoiled rich kid. And he like literally in front of the stage had 20 guitars roped off just sitting there, like, like showing off his guitar collection or something. And, uh, and they wouldn't let us do a sound check. And it was like, like he was just pulling some kind of star treatment there. Uh-huh. And we were like, this is kind of fucked up, whatever. So we went on and we didn't have a, a sound check and come out first song. We do the crawl and Aaron's bass amp isn't working. So we're like, fuck. So we're like sitting there and like, you know, everybody's got flashlights looking at his amp and I'm standing on the stage. And then I just kind of turned to the crowd and I was like, you know, Dewey's little zap is a fucking dick. <laughs> and I went on like, like a long tirade oh, geez. about what I didn't like about Tweetzel Zappa. And um, so it, <laughs> so what happened was, is of course the audience was there for Dweezil Zappa. And so like, I, I'm like, you know, Dweezil sucks. Boo! Boo! Like, you know, <laughs> but then we get the amp fixed and we start playing. We do another song where there's a break in between the song. And then I'm like, you know what else I don't like about Dweezil Zappa? Boo, boo, boo. But as the night goes on, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm making fun of, you know, he did a TV show with his sister and Cindy Williams from Vernon Shirley. So I was making fun of that show. I was like, ah, Frank's spinning in his grave with this fucking kid. The funny thing is by the end of the set, like nobody was booing anymore, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> maybe so, you, won, you won them over or they were tired of hearing it. Well, one or the <laughs> other, right? And then, so we... But on the side of the stage, like all all uh, Dweezil's guys are standing there giving us the stink eye. Not Dweezil. He was just yeah. hiding in the dressing room or something. And so we finished our set. And then uh, the bouncer or stage guy came up to me and he said, hey, you can't go backstage. They don't want you to go backstage. <laughs> so I had to like leave, like, you know, come off the stage and walk through the audience. Right. You know, so I was like, whatever. So I go walking through the audience and this dude comes up and he like grabs me he was like hey dude i just got one thing to tell you he goes i came here tonight to see dweezil zappa and then he goes and he goes but i heard what you said and i'm going home <laughs> <laughs> and the guy shook my hand and he left <laughs> you made a new fan well that's my that to me is my greatest accomplishment in life <laughs> was like turning a dweezil anyway that's a long story but the point was after that our managers were like what the fuck are you doing right, you know right. we're trying to get you like opening gigs and we were like ah fuck him he's a dick <laughs> so they didn't really like uh trust us because we were like you know we were like you know the beverly hillbillies to them like you know <laughs> they didn't know what to do with us because we were just like party animals and we were just like fuck everybody like yeah, kind of yeah. or i was i don't know if everybody was but <laughs> So they they were very nervous about like having us play with other people, and and you know there were other instances of things like that. So pretty much we toured by ourselves, <laughs> and and we had a great time doing. Yeah, it. so it sounds like it. Did you, have you ever spoke to Dweezil? No, I mean you know <laughs> he. I mean he's he is a really talented guy, and like he's doing all his father's shit now, and he does it really well. I mean, and I've seen him, you know, like like anybody else has seen him and he seems he seems like a good dude i mean he did all i can say is at that time the way they came into that venue was like off-putting but yeah yeah he seems like a cool dude to me so i I don't really have any beef with him i don't i doubt he even remembers like right. you, know, you know what i mean you should tell him that story if you ever cross paths 
<laughs> then he'll punch me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I caught you guys live once at, um, it was a radio event in Florida called Livestock. Oh, yeah. I think it was Livestock 2, maybe. I'm, I'm yeah, not I sure what so. Yeah. But yeah, I, I remember catching you guys there. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, those shows were always great down there. Yeah, that was a good one. I think Soundgarden did it that year, too. I think but so. On a different night, not the same night as us. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Um, so here you are. You got your record deal. You're not allowed to tour with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think maybe that could have, the album could have been bigger if you got on a big tour? Well, I mean, honestly, that wasn't really the issue. because It wasn't like we were banned from doing that. Um, a big, so really the issue with our band is, is that um, by the time we got signed, um, everybody really wasn't getting along, you uh, know? Already? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So, I mean, we, you know, we got something going on in the scene and we were doing well and we had people interested in stuff. And um, there was a point where me and Ethan were thinking of going off and doing something and, and Mike and Aaron were thinking of going off and doing something else, you know, um, like me and Ethan were talking more like straight up rock, just doing something, you know, and, and I know uh, like uh, Aaron and Mike um, were interested in doing something a little, you know, more chili pepperish or whatever. Mm. And then we got this publishing deal. You know, and it was like, oh, well, what kind of idiot would jump out of a sign, you know, getting a record deal, you know? Mm. But yeah. but there was a lot of like, you know, like a lot of uh, beef between everybody. Um, not every, I mean, really them and me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, every, them against you, you know, so um, we, so the really the thing that held us back is that you know we toured the first record we had a commitment to do the second record and we did very well with the first record even not really opening for people and stuff and um but before we even started talking about doing the the second record um everybody quit except for me <laughs> so you know ethan you know really was never into having the horns in the band mm. and he he was much more into like kind of putting a band together like and in, in those days something like badlands with jakey lee like you know he because he was like he was a really good guitar player and he wanted to be like you know have a project that was really more about him and his guitar playing i don't mean that in a negative way mm. but he was just where he was coming from he wasn't really into doing all the funk stuff like he thought it kind of got played out and he didn't really yeah, that's like total, doing anymore. That's so like he was total like, opposites. You know, I'm gonna do something a little bit more like straight ahead rock, mm -hmm. heavy metal. You know, and then uh, you know, Aaron was his brother, and um, and he was kind of like, well, if Ethan's not gonna do it, you know, me and Mike were playing with this other dude, and you know, our heart's not really in this. So suddenly, I'm sitting in the car with these guys, and I'm like, okay, like how does this work? <laughs> now there's just me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then Aaron and uh, Mike started this other project, and they took the horn section. And I'm like, all right, well, there's like literally just me, right? So um, we had a conversation about it, and they said, look, you know, basically, like, you know, we're leaving the band. You know, if you want to keep the band going, you know, you can do that. And and um, 
so I did, you know, and um, recruited more people from my neighborhood <laughs> into the stayed, band. Stayed in the neighborhood. So, you know, uh, other guys. So I got Craig, who was friends with Ethan and had been uh, even, they were roommates for a while. And Craig actually toured with us as Ethan's guitar tech for a while. So he was almost like uh, the understudy. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, they had similar backgrounds and and we brought him in and Eric and Dave and um, and then Brendan, who was the original trumpet player, left playing with um, Mike and Aaron and came on board. And we and we put together, you know, the second version of uh, White Trash. And then we had to convince Electra that, like, yeah, this is still the same thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, did you ever consider maybe, you know, not going under white trash, changing the name? Yes, I did. But the reality of the situation was that white trash had a record deal, you know. <laughs> and had a little bit of a following going on. And there was no assurance that if I went and did another project that I'd have that. Right. Right. So it was really just a business decision at that point that like, Plus, you know, I had devoted a lot of time and energy and I didn't want to quit. You know what I mean? Sure. So I kind of felt like, well, you know, I'm not like kicking people out of the band. You know what I mean? And on some ego trip, it's just they, they, their heart is elsewhere. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. sort of like a football team, right? Like if, if the guy's contract's up and he wants to go somewhere else, right? Well, yeah. That's how you guys got Tom Brady, right? So, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All's fair and love, war, music, everything. So, you know, I felt like, well, they're going to go on and do something else. And, um, you know, I'm not done with this yet. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. now, so we just buckled down and, and, and went on to round two. <laughs> right. Now, the first album, the self-titled album, I thought was a fantastic album. Like, all the songs on there, I can't think of a bad song. Thank you. Um, and The Crawl got used on that John Stewart show, right? Yes, right. How, how did that happen? Well, so John Stewart originally was on uh, MTV. And in those days, MTV didn't pay any royalties because their their whole argument was like, well, you know, we can make you a star by playing your video, right? Which right. was true. Yeah, right. But they didn't pay royalties. I mean, years later, they had to pay royalties. But at that time, they didn't. And so John Stewart had a talk show on MTV, and I, uh, John Stewart apparently liked that song, and they just said, "Oh, okay, then we'll use that." Like they never cleared it with us or anything; they just did it, you know. Hmm. And but which was cool. We didn't have a beef with it because all of a sudden, you know, we had apple pie on, you know, on a Buzzbin clip, and then and then John Stewart's coming on with our song, like you know, yeah. We were like, ah, this is all good. good <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That's great. So, so what happened with that is that the, then John Stewart, after that, went to Paramount to do his TV show. And EMI wouldn't work out a deal with him for The Crawl. So I wrote John Stewart another song that was very similar to The Crawl for his uh, TV show on UPN 9. And then... That you know, so then, so I, I wrote, I had two songs with the John Stewart show. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you record your second album. What, what was the second album? What's the title? Well, it's C O C K, 
which spells something. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a joke that went over everybody's head. Now everybody gets it, but yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Was that, whose idea was that? Yours? I'm yes or it. yes? What? Like, what does it mean? <laughs> that was your idea, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now, how did you? How did that album go? It was actually an amazing experience. There were certain things that were not working in our favor. Um, but that's, you know, for me, that was the best experience making a record, which is not a knock on the guys that I played with prior and sure. who I also play with now, you know, because we, we still play together. But that was like um, that was like a, a like a, a important moment for me personally in my life, because I had to become more of a musician. And I I, I, I had to really fight to get that record made. And uh you know, at, at that time, the whole music scene changed, you know, because Nirvana and everything came out. Mm -hmm. So, like, everybody talks about the whole scene changed. It went much more in the grunge direction. And we were like this real oddball product at that time because, you know, we never even 100% fit in with the hairband thing because we weren't really right. playing straight up, you know, 80s metal, you know, and we weren't like a power ballad band or anything. So it was always kind of weird how we were a part of that scene anyway. But then when the, the grunge scene came in, it was like like anybody who was part of that hair metal scene was suddenly, you know, not cool anymore. You know what I mean? Right. So it, it was very tough to make that record and, and to get it done and to get it out and released. It took it was a very long process, um, but it was a great, great experience. It's definitely like probably the best uh moment of my life even though it was nowhere near as successful as the first album mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was a much better experience in a lot of different ways for me and it, it so um it's cool because that record has like a really big cult following um amongst our fans um like i like i said there's no comparison the first record is like the the <laughs> record that defines us right but that record was like, you know, it's like an oddball. Like, I'm into like, you know, B movies and, you know, <laughs> and B sides of albums and stuff. And it was kind of, that was the inspiration for that album. It's like, we weren't really looking for hits or anything like that. It was like, it was, uh, you know, and it, it came out, you know, pretty much exactly the way we wanted to it to be. Uh -huh. It was just a very strange product at that time, you know when you're competing against Soundgarden and right. Nirvana and stuff, we, we didn't fit into that scene. There was no way to even pretend we were part of that scene. You right. know what I mean? Right. Right. So did it, did that album get support from the label after it was released? Yeah, we, we toured that one just like we did on the first one. Okay. We actually, um, we actually got to open <laughs> for kiss Hey, <laughs> at the concrete convention. Did you cause um, any, any trouble? Yes. Yes. With Kiss? Not with Kiss. Oh, okay. <laughs> but we trashed uh, a hotel room and <laughs> and we had to we had to pay like five thousand dollars or something for the because the, it was special wallpaper or something. I, I don't know, something like that. Oh jeez. But no, we never cleaned up our act in that. We were always, you know, assholes breaking things and you know like I you know, I always like like, you know, I don't know if you watch WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. Uh huh. They had that one episode with that band, The Scum of the Earth. I don't remember it. I'd have to go back and look. And then they have them come on, and they're like these 
these like refined English gentlemen talking, but they're just burning everything and like trashing <laughs> everything. They throw somebody out a window that and was- uh, things like that. And like <laughs> Chris Holmes in uh, that metal movie where he's floating around in the pool. Yeah. Drinking the, vodka. the metal years. Yes. Those things make great, made great impressions on me. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So I, I always loved the the self-destructive <laughs> rock star lifestyle, just breaking things. And, you know, in those days, I wouldn't, I don't condone it. But I mean, in those days, I was certainly some guy drinking and driving like fucking maniac. And yeah, so it was like I said, we really bought into that Motley Crue, live fast, die young kind of thing. The only problem is we didn't die young. We had a lot of stuff to clean up after that. <laughs> so were you... Were you like that outside the band? Like just as normal Dave, not not in the band? Have you always been that yeah, way? Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't an act. I was just fucking out of my mind at that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, 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 I don't really regret that because, to be honest, nothing would have happened if I wasn't out of my mind. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because it was, it was, we had a lot of the odds stacked against us every step of the way. And the fact that we were able to sell it and, and get signed a lot of it had to do with me whoring myself out yeah. <laughs> in the club scene, and and uh, you know, it's it, you got to be a little crazy to do this stuff. Now I'm sure there are many examples of where I took it too far, but <laughs> we won't. I, I got to be honest; those. I have zero regrets about that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so after the second album, um, that was it for a while, right? Yeah. Well, so we did the second record, and. Um, it, uh, by the end of the tour, like I said, we were touring and then, you know, you kind of go into like smaller venues and, and, and weren't quite getting the same turnouts and stuff. And I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, like, you know, this is a, uh, this is a tough sell right now with everything that's going on in music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not in any way putting down like grunge or any sure. that, that there's great music there too, but we just were like, you know what I mean? Like my style of singing was very like high and, you know, you know yeah it was different suddenly they're they're singing you know like you know you know in a much lower register with with harmonies and you know it's a different kind of singing it's beautiful singing and it i honestly i just kind of looked at it and i was like i don't really see how we fit into this Uh, it's not fitting in with this you know and um i just kind of get the sense you know from watching other bands too you know you know, uh, the bands that were playing like, you know, the cool clubs like Lamar. Now those clubs were gone and now they were playing other venues like in Queens, like, you know, uh, Castle Heights, which was really just a bar with a stage in the back, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just kind of looked at it and I said, you know, I think this whole thing has probably just kind of run its course. You know what I mean? And yeah. I kind of didn't really... <laughs> feel like just you know i just kind of felt like you know i came i conquered i kicked some ass but i think you know it's time to do something else yeah and i just so i just stopped doing it those guys all you know kept playing in different bands and stuff but i i kind of just went off and uh did a lot of other stuff did you stay in music or or did you just completely leave it I completely left it pretty much. Um, the last thing I did right after like white trash was over was late when I was talking about John Stewart had the, the second show. Mm-hmm. So they actually paid me a lot of money to write a different version of the crawl. 
And uh, I did that pretty much by myself. Mike came in and played drums. And we had the, what was cool about that, we had the Uptown Horns from the Rolling Stones play the horns. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and it came out really good. And if, if that first, if that John Stewart show had become the hit that his next show became with the daily show, right. I, I, you know, that would have been amazing, but that show only lasted about a year and a half. So it like was really good royalties and stuff for like a year and a half. So it was sort of like my retirement plan. I felt at that (laughs) time, like, all right, I'm going to take this movie. I, I, I moved to Florida. Like I, I literally retired. Like I was just drinking and chilling out, sitting on a porch every day. <laughs> breaking a TV every now and then. What's that? Breaking a TV every now and then. <laughs> no, I think I, <laughs> at that point I had calmed down a little bit. But uh, where, where in Florida did you move? Uh, Tampa area. Okay, that's where I'm from. I grew up there. Yeah, so I lived in Tampa, and then I lived in Tarpon Springs. Okay. Oh. Okay. And. Um, yeah, it, and uh, that was that was cool. And then uh, yeah, there's some like lost years in there. I was like doing filmmaking, and then I went back to school, and you know, there was just a lot of different stuff happened in there. But none of it had anything to do with music, you know. Right, right. So, so like I lived in, and from, and then I moved to California, like San Francisco. I was out there for a few years. I got my master's degree. And then when I came back to New York, I, I ran into Aaron, you know, and um, some dude we knew asked if we would want to do some reunion show. And so I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. And then uh, so we did this reunion show. And then uh, I suddenly realized, like, wow, I, I really missed this. <laughs> like, yeah. this, this is this is what I should be doing. What was I doing? You know what I mean? Sort of like that. Right. So then we got back together and, um, this and you know, since then we've put out two more records and we're working on an, another one now with the, with the original lineup. Well, you know, Ethan passed away, mm-hmm. um, a few years back, he had a heart attack. Um, so, but we had gone between Ethan and Craig, who was on the second record. Cause like I said, we all grew up together, so it was never like, uh, you know, we went out and just got different people. It was all people. We were all friends. Like everybody in my second band knew the people in the first band. It wasn't like, so, it, right. you know, for us, it's like a, you know, kind of like a family affair. Yeah. Um, so Craig and Ethan were both playing. Aaron and came back in and he stayed in. Mike was doing it for a while. And then Dave, you know, the second drummer came in for a while. Uh, and 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 you know now it's <laughs> it's a much bigger white trash because there's like it's sort of like how Parliament I don't know how much you know about Parliament but that whole P funk thing you know they've got like hundreds of musicians involved you know and we're sort of like moved in that direction where we've had like lots of different horn players although right now we have the original horn players um, we've had a few different uh, drummers in the mix and. Uh, Sky Tuan that I play with in another project has played some white trash shows. Now we have a new guitar player, uh, uh, Mark Pincus, who was in another project I did called Bone Monkey. And um, so, yeah, I mean, if you added up all the people in uh, white trash, it's, it's quite like, a few. 
<laughs> he probably felt <laughs> a gymnasium or something, you know? Right. So you're, when you're writing songs, are you the main songwriter? Um, I mean, I, I, as far as percentage-wise, I'm the main songwriter. Uh, in general, you know, me and Aaron split the duties. Like, um, you know, we we you know, like with lots of we have a, a a unique relationship, and we and when we write really well together, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we're we're on the same wavelength, so it, it's kind of easy to write with Aaron. And Aaron writes a ton of material too. Like he's got a side project, so like you know, we have tons of material to work on. But, you know, I always like working on stuff with Aaron. It, you know, I think what we do complements e each other really well. Okay. And so you said you're writing some stuff now, um, and that's for a, a full-length album? Yeah, we have enough right now for a full-length record. Demoed a bunch of stuff. We were, ac we're actually trying to come up with the best strategy of how to do this now. Mm -hmm. Um you know, as because, like, you know, obviously nowadays CDs don't seem to be as important. So, you know, it's more like the medium we're trying to figure out. We're doing vinyl or we're just doing digital. Right. Vinyl seems to be pretty popular right now, I think. Yeah. I, I kind of want to do some vinyl. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also looking at potentially re releasing some old stuff on vinyl. Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff going on and side projects and, uh, but we do have a bunch of material together that's ready to go. So it's really just doing it at this point. Yeah. Now, are you going to release it on your own or are you going to try and shop it around? Um, we're probably going to do it on our own. Um, there's some people that we've talked to that are interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the way the music industry is now, you have to kind of weigh out, you know, I mean, obviously like, you know, if a major label was going to come in and give you the kind of deal we had back in 1990 you know relative to today's time you take it because you'd be nuts not to take it you know right. but you know record companies now don't offer those kind of deals number one and number two they want all your publishing they want your merchandise right and and because it's harder to monetize music you know with streaming and and all that so you know to be honest, I don't know how interested we are in working with anybody because when we've done the last couple of records, we did them on our own mm -hmm. and we've had good success relative, you know, to the budgets we've had. Yeah. So unless somebody's going to come in and really do something that we can't do ourselves, you know. Yeah. You might um, as well just do it yourself. It's debatable. I know people argue both ways, but it's it's hard if you've got to give up all your merchandising and publishing all to one person. It just seems like that's not a good deal, right. <laughs> you know. So, can we expect to hear a single soon? I'm sorry, you dropped out. What'd you say? Can we expect to hear a single pretty soon? Uh, yeah, we're we're we have stuff recorded, and there. <laughs> I'll just say we we have a Christmas song. <laughs> a Christmas song? A, a Christmas song. Wow. So, um, I'm not sure if we can get it together by this Christmas, because that's kind of quick. Um, and again, it's obviously not a traditional Christmas song. But, um, so, we, we would like to try to get that out for Christmas, sort of as like a free download kind of thing, just to, you know, put it out there. Right. But the whole project's going to, you know, it won't be done by christmas there's like no way but um 
you know, the material's there, and uh, as they say, build it, and they will come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm excited to hear that news, so yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the band, so. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, I guess we don't know yet where you would be able to get that, because you don't know what's going to happen with the release of it, right? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, you know, anything we put out now is, you know, on iTunes, Amazon, all that stuff, you know. Um, sure vinyl you know i mean the whole thing i think is with doing vinyl we haven't done that yeah so that it, it's like the the amount of time you need to actually have vinyl printed and and then you know if you're shipping vinyls it's a lot different than shipping a cd and stuff so yeah lead you know, time on vinyl like is... a label or a distributor might be of value to us you know yeah lead time on vinyl right now is outrageous yeah, that's what I'm saying. So you can do like short run stuff, but the quality's not as good. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I want to do it right. Sure. So, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, like I said, if somebody wanted to come in <laughs> and uh, take care of all of that for us, then we'd probably be looking to make a deal on that. But um, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, the first album, that is that not available on vinyl? It, it was, but it was only in available on vinyl in europe okay so there's like a very limited amount of pressings mm -hmm. of that and uh like we all have a copy and i know a few people that i you know i've been in touch with like fans and friends have found copies on ebay and stuff like that uh -huh. so there's some copies of that out there but it, it um not enough you know for the demand for it so yeah, yeah. That's why we were thinking, you know, it might be cooler to release it on vinyl. Definitely. You know? Yeah. I mean, most of the, just for me personally, I mean, all the, if I buy something now, it's a vinyl. Like, I won't buy yeah. a CD or something. I'll buy a download just because it's convenient. But, yeah. But as far as a physical project product, I'll buy the vinyl. Yeah, totally. That's what we were thinking, too. Like, you know, it, release it on vinyl and then, you know, buy the vinyl and you get the free downloads, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. So when you're in your car or whatever, you, right. know, you can stream it. Are you a vinyl collector? I have a lot of vinyl. Um, I don't really go out of my way to collect it like a lot of people do now. Mm -hmm. but I still have a lot of vinyl, um, you know, from growing up. And um, I actually have a bunch of Craig's vinyl <laughs> sitting in front of me. And he has a really good record collection. So yeah. I have i have a decent i have a good collection but i know nowadays there's like people who are like super uh collectors you know with like rooms full of vinyl i don't have that yeah <laughs> that would suck to have to move wouldn't it with all that well yeah that's why i have craig stuff because he, <laughs> he moved to california and i i <laughs> he, he couldn't take it with him so i have his turntable and his old stereo and his and his vinyl you know yeah 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 all right, Dave. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you taking time to uh, have this little conversation with me this evening. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, yeah. And I'll definitely look for a uh, new White Trash to come out. And uh, yeah, all is good. Cool. All right, buddy. All, all right. Well, thank you for having me. All right, man. You take care. All right. You too. We'll see you. All right. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms. 